looking to create wealth in commercial property but don't know how to do it, tired of negative gearing and not getting ahead, well, you're in the right place. You're listening to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Welcome to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. My name is Andrew Bean, and I'm here with the founder of Revolve Commercial and my trusty co-host, Mish Daniel. How are you, Mish? Hey, Andrew. Great to be back on the show. Definitely is. So who's our next victim, Mish? So we have (laughs) Terry Fields, who is a very well-accomplished insurance broker in not just commercial, but a wide range of insurance right across the board, residential, commercial, as well as business insurance. Really fantastic knowledge with lots of hot tips. And most definitely, the best part of this interview, I would say, would be right in the end of the interview where Terry loosens up and he's given away some really good stuff to get your teeth into in the commercial world. Yeah, we definitely go through quite a lot of stuff in this one, Mish, don't we? So we, we go through uh, you know, how in insurance business changes. We touched on self-storage insurance as well, the different businesses that insurances won't touch. So if you're looking at basically investing in something and a lot of the businesses in there, you're wondering the insurance is going to be higher. Definitely listen to that because Terry gives us a few tips on what insurance is going to be higher for different businesses. We also have a unscripted big announcement, Mish and I. I also have uh, the cats out of the bag on that one, Mish. We announced something that we weren't expecting to announce. So that's some good fun there. And what else do we have? Oh, the building type. We talked about building type, didn't we? What insurers like to see in a building that you're buying. That's a really cool tip there. And there's a a little bit at the end where we talk about some kind of loopholes in some insurance. So we'll just hang on to that as well. And last but not least, there actually is a another free giveaway this week, the insurance checklist. So we give the information on that where you can go and download that. So just hang in till the end to grab that one. Anything else we need to mention, Mish, before we jump into this one? I actually just want to talk a little bit about that checklist, Andrew, because that checklist, you know, a lot of people would question what needs to be done in due diligence. And that checklist covers a large portion of very, very vitally important information. So, you know, with that checklist in your hand, I'd say you're halfway there. Beautiful. Shall we bring the next victim in? Yep. Let's bring Terry in. Let's get into some juicy bits. All right. Can't find any good deals? Revolve Commercial has you covered with the hottest commercial property picks every month delivered free straight to your inbox. Subscribe today at www.revolvecommercial.com.au. Sit back, save time, and have the deals delivered directly to you from Revolve Commercial. Welcome to the show, Terry. How you doing, mate? I'm fine. Yourself? I'm fantastic, buddy. So, mate, can you just tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay. I am an insurance broker. My aim is to solve insurance queries for customers, both large and small, assist them with their insurance slash protection program, and, yes, service their needs on going basis. So, mate, in light of the devastating floods in Queensland, northern New South Wales, in particular Lismore, and to a lesser extent, Sydney, we thought it would be a good idea to get someone with your expertise on the show to help us moving forward. 
So, Miss, you want to kick it off? Yeah, absolutely. So, Terry, <laughs> hope you're well. Nice to have you on the show. Needless to say, how are the Queenslanders going to cop it with the increases in, in premiums now that uh, we've been hammered with the floods? And I don't think it's only Queenslanders. It's probably all the way down the coast. Yeah, very good question. And that's one that I honestly can't quantify. However, once the, well, I was going to say the dust, but it's really mud settles or gets cleaned away, all the insurers and different insurers will be impacted greater than others, like Queensland, I suppose Suncorp, for instance, is a, one of the largest residential insurers in Queensland. They will determine at the end of the day where things need to be without, they have an insurance pool of money that they need to have there at all times. So time will tell. And I'm not trying to avoid your question, but that really is the only answer that I can give you at this point in time. And I hope that's suffices okay there's a lot of factors to be taken into account absolutely i think there are quite a lot of factors to take into account and and i can't help asking how did they view it and what did they do about it after the 2011 floods oh i can't remember the last week let alone 2011 Uh, but you know every once again every insurer can act differently depending on their exposures and so forth so once again for all the premium pool let's call it that that uh, each of the insurers have they have an expectation there's going to be something happen drastically on a yearly basis, I suppose. So they're not out to impact on their clients, but at the same time, mm. they need to be able to have that pool of money for when these times happen. So things can get sorted out as quickly as possible. And there's a lot of factors outside simply having money there. It's it's got to be able to be able to assess, approve and pay along the way. So that claims process can be a little bit lengthy depending on the circumstances. It's very interesting because I know it's uh, actuarially, so the actuaries have to work this out. I guess it's all tying into changes and what's happening meteorology-wise, so the changes in the climates. I've got a lot of ologies in my conversation today. Well, I'm glad you Um, had to say that one, Miss, that's all. But the interesting thing is, I mean, we I'm looking at, at Gympie that went right underwater in places like Lismore. I mean, Lismore yes. was well underwater. Those kind of businesses that have been heavily impacted, would insurers take a different view on those properties, do you think? Well, let's just clarify. There's two sides to, when I say two sides, you've got your residential market and you've got your business market. Now, the figures I'm going to quote right now, please, let's just take them as being roughly general. The majority of your domestic product has flood cover automatically included. Okay, so when I say that's the majority of them, and then people either choose to take the cover or to pay the insurance, whatever premiums that may represent. Then on the commercial side, as about 90%, I think I said, residential. That is the reverse for commercial insurance. Okay, so it is an optional extra that if approved by an insurer, there is obviously extra premium to pay. And you've got a whole mix of different businesses, whether they're part of a large national, international group versus your down to your mum and dad business, et cetera. So unfortunately, the majority of businesses aren't insured for flood. But in this situation, the insurers go to the length of determining exactly what is the event. I mean, everyone uses the word flood. But in some instances, it could be stormwater damage, which is covered under the policy, whereas flood may not be. And as I say, I don't want to get right into technicalities of it all, but 
the insurers will appoint hydrologists who will then determine what has actually happened to then determine whether the policy will respond or not. Why do the insurances have the flood insurance wrapped up into like a residential or a domestic product, like you said, and then leave it separate for commercial? What's the thought behind that? I think of what I was aware of out of after 2011, whatever, the Royal Commission, and they decided that insurers, particularly for the domestic product, and but as I say, it's about 90%, I think. Some, you can opt out of it. Some people think that they're it's never going to happen. And if you're sitting on top of a hill, which overlooks a, a valley, well, more than likely you're not going to. But there is flood mapping. All the companies had flood mapping to determine where their risks are. With the commercial insurance, like anything, it is a, a choice of business people, whether they want to have it. As I say, the option is there to request it. However, at the end of the day, the insurers still can determine whether they will provide the product or not. Like any business who you try and re- mitigate your risk, I suppose the insurers, whilst they're trying to be that they, they can't be all things to all people, and that's not a defensive statement. I'm, I mean, I'm acting on behalf of my clients, not the insurers at the end of the day, but it's a matter of discussions that we have with clients. There's other covers within a business policy that they can choose to have or not have as well. So it is a combination of both insurer decision as well as client decision as well at the end of the day. Yeah. It's very interesting because an interesting question there, Andrew. I'm just thinking, so residentially, if you've got a house on a hill, you're still going to pay for flood insurance. Is that right? Well, yeah, but it would be rated accordingly based on the location with the flood mapping. Okay. okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. So from like a, an insurance company perspective, when disasters happen, like is there a big flurry of activity in the like internal part of that like insurance company to reassess oh, and stuff like that? Oh, absolutely. There's two parts, but the insurance companies, you know, to try and assist people, there's people on the ground, there's people in location. I was at Mwilumbar yesterday at an insurance company. I won't go into names, no, no need for that. But, you know, they've got teams on the ground there at the, at the Civic Centre trying to help people. So I, probably not the, the answer to the question you're asking. But, yes, after post, like any business, prudent business, they will go back and assess what's occurred where things stand for them financially at the end of the day. And those people on the pay grade a lot higher than myself, they'll then make those decisions of what will need to happen moving forward. I mean, I'm just thinking about insurance companies myself. Do they actually, I know this sounds bad, but do they want bad things to happen so their premiums go up? Or do they just want to collect (laughs) like premiums and and have nothing ever happen so they never have to like pay out? Like what's, uh, that sounds bad, but realistically it's a business. Well, it, it is a business and that's where, I mean, of course, if things didn't happen, the pool of money that they need to have to react, yeah, that would they need to collect that as much as they are going to do. But, you know, Australia is a continent that suffers a lot of bad things. And as we know, in recent times, there's been a number of them. But, you know, like any business, yes, whether it's a public listed company, shareholders, all that sort of thing. But, no, they're there to be able to respond to events when they occur, whether it's a single house fire that burns the house down or let's say a business that burns that business down, building down, et cetera. As long as the event is covered under the policy, then every policy that we place, if I can put it this way, every policy we place is a potential claim, whether that be large or small. So when you have businesses, you can have everything from someone putting a brick through the front glass of that shop to it burning down. So that's the way I see it. That's a very interesting way of looking at it. And I think from a client point of view, that just gives us a totally different perspective 
So when ensuring our businesses or our home, if we think of it the same way that insurers think of it, we might see our insurance different. There is certain responsibility on whether it be property owners of commercial or residential tenants, whether business or residential, to try and mitigate loss. Yeah. I mean, you can't have a, a commercial building, for instance, with an iron roof that's busting out and the property owner doesn't do anything about it. Because at the end of the day, there is responsibility on everyone to take responsibility on what is theirs and try and mitigate any loss. So, How do the insurance companies reassess locations after disasters? Oh, gee whiz. They will look at it. They are, once again, talking about rates, whether rates will increase, whether they offer. Even if you look at areas within Australia and an area that I deal with in far north Queensland, like here in, here in Gold Coast or Sydney, there's numerous insurers, and let's say nine of the major insurers will insure, I won't say most situations, but they're readily to insure in those locations. But geographically, go to far north Queensland, and it reduces quite dramatically. So insurers, as a business, have a right to insure or not to insure as well. And that's not a slant against insurance companies. It's like any business. Someone walks into someone's business, they have the right to serve that person or not serve that person, depending on presentation or whatever it might be. We know that there's businesses out there that have that, well, businesses that have that choice every day on who they want to deal with. And that's the same with insurance companies. They will look at the risk and decide whether they want to take on that risk. That's not saying they want all the cream to not have those exposures, but that is their choice at the end of the day. So realistically, I mean, with all of these floods that have happened very recently, the the insurance companies, after they have paid out, uh, could choose not to insure floods anymore. Yes, depending on the product or they, yeah, they have a right. They have their own right to or not to. And But it's the same as the consumer or the business person. They can mm. choose what they want to insure for or not what they insure for. So it is two-way street, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So realistically, from the owner's perspective, if let's just say for argument's sake, we've got a commercial building in Lismore and it was flood insured, uh, the insurers will pay out. But yes. after they've paid out, they could turn around and say, look, we're not going to insure the building anymore. Is that right? Or they could decide, no, we won't do, we won't provide flood cover. But I mean, there's other perils that they can be insured for. So yes, they have that, they have that right to if they want to. And then whether there's any other insurance company will provide that level of cover. When you've taken out a policy and you have flood insurance and say something happens, you're still on that policy. Can they change that policy while it's still running and active? If, for instance, a business is somewhere close to a hotel and they have three or four instances where people have come out of the hotel and decide to put their boot through the front glass window, they will act on those claims. But at some point, they may increase the excess, for instance. So there's an inherent danger there. So they may not take away the cover whatsoever, but they might might increase the excess, whether that's done in the same term of insurance or the next term. That's a decision of the insurance company. So those things can happen, yes. Is there some sort of a risk matrix that they have, it runs through and, and they do a risk analysis on that particular event? On a particular, are you talking about for a particular business for a particular event or we are, you, are we still talking about storm event that's occurred? I'd rather call it a yeah, storm like the, event. Like the storm yeah. event that occurred. So like you say for you pinpointing Lismore, they've identified that this has happened to Lismore now and then it probably is going to happen again. 
how do they assess that risk? There must be some sort of matrix that they have to do this to make it more like procedural to actually do this, not just someone going, oh, actually, I think this is probably a bad idea. Like there must be a procedure they go through. Well, if those businesses in Lismore don't have flood cover now, once again, generally speaking, I wouldn't think they'd be able to get flood cover in the future. But once again, there's many other perils that the policy will cover. I know we're emphasising on flood right now, but there's many other perils that can occur with the business and they can be insured for those. So, and I'm, yeah. and I'm sure, I mean, this is where actuaries come in who are highly, highly skilled at running the numbers and the uh, possibilities of repeat events. And that's why I mentioned earlier, you think insurance, you think of actuaries. They're the guys who, who actually make the decision, run the stats and say, yes, it's viable or no, it's not. Yeah, and at the end of the day, as brokers, we find that out and we've got to deal with it at the end of the day. What is available? Is it available somewhere? Is there an insurer that provides that particular cover? You know, there's many variable risks out in the marketplace today and not all of them fit into the one square. That's why we're there to try and provide the solution for the particular business. As we know, there are many different types of businesses out there and some have their own unique set of exposures that maybe another business doesn't. So I'm sort of heading into the area here of how does a broker deal with those particular clients and that's what we do. All right, Terry, crazy question. Is it ever possible for premiums to go down? Okay. (laughs) There's ways of doing it and I could talk about, you know, you pay a higher excess for premiums to come down. This insurance market does actually operate on a cycle. Now, that cycle is not 12 monthly, six monthly, whatever. There is a cycle. And currently, well, before these events, we were in a what I would call a hardening market. So that means that, yes, there are rate increases. Insurers are needing to gain a little bit more income to ensure that they've got that insurance pool there. So as I say, currently in a hardening market, and I don't probably don't see that changing now for a little while. But then when we talk about when it goes to a softening market, you may have influences like insurers wanting to buy market share, those sorts of things where they'll come in and they'll, they'll aim at particular occupations that they know they can be competitive in and grow. So that may put then pressure on other insurers to meet those, but insurers will make that decision at the time. So hopefully that answers your question. As I say, for if someone's got insurance policy in place this year, and it increases by 5% next year based on the, let's call it expiring terms, no change in sums insured, turnover or anything like that, that client may say, okay, well, I'm prepared to wear instead of a $250 or a $500 excess for any claim, I'm happy to wear a $2,000 excess. Now, that excess paying $2,000 is not going to reduce the premium by $2,000, but it will give some premium relief. So, that's one of the ways that a, a business person can look at maintaining a reasonable level of cost of their insurance as well. So in other words, they're picking up more of the risk than what the uh, insurance company... Com- well, it can be a combination of factors, yes. I mean, the, well, no, the it's not the risk. They're just happy to pay more because there's a lot of businesses who don't want to claim on small claims, depending on the type of business and so forth. So they're people who will take, okay, I can afford a $2,000 or $5,000 excess if it's a larger business and so forth. But the smaller the smaller businesses, yeah, they'll take the, the minimum excess every day because 
They're wanting to simply get the claim settled. They're happy to pay their small excess and accept the premium that's been charged for it. Insurance does go into your overall cost deduction. I mean, I'm thinking businesses now. Yes, absolutely. So it does form part of of your uh, tax deduction. So it is kind of covered that way. It makes yes, sense. Absolutely. The best you know, insurance. If, if you've got a business that's turning over a million dollars a year and their premium is ten thousand dollars, that might just make sense. Do different types of disasters then carry more weight in terms of premiums? And I kind of almost know the answer because we had one of these with recycling, with a recycling business. And I know that various different businesses carry different premiums. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, that's the underwriting component of insurance. If we just stay with commercial properties, you've got two buildings side by side, very similar. Let's say the, the value of those buildings are the same, just to make it easy. And we've got office risks in one, you know, lawyers, doctors, solicitors. But in the other one, we've got metal manufacturing, molten, steel, other manufacturing businesses in there. Well, obviously, the exposure to risk on that type of property is so far greater than the office type risk building. So yeah, occupations or businesses, whether they're tenants or con- within a, a property owner's building, one of the variables that will drastically differ from one lot of occupations to another. I think the original question was, but do different disasters, like different things that happen, do they have carry more weight as in like, do the premiums go up because of a flood as opposed to a fire? Like what is the difference there well, or is it just across the board? If you simply go to the policy, if you went to a policy wording of a, let's call it a business pack insurance, and you go to the first section, section one, or property damage or fire and other damage cover, what you've got to look at is all the events that are covered under that, and that's rated whether it's a fire, whether it's a storm, malicious damage, all the events that are covered under that property damage simply form part of the cover that the client is insuring for. So in the policy wording of a business pack, it clearly shows what is covered and it clearly shows what is not covered. An event is an event. At the end of the day, it's a matter of the insurer insuring the client for those events under that section. I mean, in a business insurance product, you have property damage cover so or fire and other damage depending on what terminology you want to use but then there's other covers for a business whether it's plate glass as part of their lease requirement whether it's theft cover so someone breaks in after hours you have money cover so someone holds someone up at the end of the day or breaks in takes cash mechanical breakdown equipment breakdown so if a business is a production type business do they want to mitigate their losses by having cover for mechanical breakdown. So it can be made up of a dozen parts, a business insurance product. Well, the plate glass one's a big one in the retail sector, isn't it, Mish, as well? Massive. And it's very interesting that you mentioned that. And I think for the purpose of of our listeners, it's important to mention that uh, plate glass cover is often covered by the tenant and not necessarily by the the vendor, the owner of the building. But it's all, always something to look out for in your due diligence when purchasing a property. If someone's purchasing a property with tenants in there, it's good to get a copy of the leases because the leases will then outline what are the minimum requirements that the tenant, from an insurance point of view, is meant to have in place. As I say, if there was a major catastrophe to the, the building, so let's differentiate. Someone comes along, as I said before, puts a brick through the window. 
the lease would say the climate of their insurance is to insure the plate glass, for instance. Let's say 99% of the leases would have that component in there. If the building burnt down, once again, the glass forms an integral part of the building, so it's not claimed on the tenant's insurance, it's part of the building insurance. But to offset against that accidental damage or malicious damage, that's where the tenant, 99% of the cases, would have it. So, man, I was wondering, from my experience, I know that you know banks do this, but I was wondering if insurances do this as well, where they have specific locations that they're more likely to want to insure than others. I was wondering if you could give us a few locations around Australia, anywhere around Australia, that insurers don't like, so we can try and avoid those areas. Well, as I was stating before, I mean, I have, for me, I have clients from northern New South Wales through to Cairns. So let's take far north Queensland. Supposedly the cyclone, because I don't operate in WA, but certainly I would think parts of WA the same, Northern Territory. But from my own experience, and I'll use that, is yes, the risk appetite, as I said before, for insurance company is less in far north Queensland than, say, what it would be on the Gold Coast. So in other words, you'll get insurers, but you'll probably pay a higher premium. Is that right? Yes, and there's been a lot of newsworthy activity around that and then the government wanting to create a insurance pool to assist people in far north Queensland. I can't say where that's at at this point in time, but I know there's been a lot of discussions around it. The local federal member up in Cairns has been pushing the barrow for a long time. But yes, without getting into politics, because I don't get into politics, but yes, so there are locations where less insurers are willing to take on the risk. Absolutely. And as I said before, as like any business, they have a right to or, or not to. Can you name them? Do you have any off the top of your head that you can let us in on? <laughs> I, I No, I, I think that'd be done on a case-by-case situation. So let's say out of nine insurers that I would go to here on the Gold Coast for commercial property, that probably comes down to about three or four up in far north Queensland. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but I was wondering if you could give us an idea because there are obviously different business types that are harder to insure, like tattoo parlors. We all know that they're a bit hard to insure. I was wondering if you give us like a couple of business types that we should try and avoid because it's harder to get insurance on them. Well, okay. We mentioned recycling. Tattoo parlors. (laughs) Yeah. So you've got your tattoo parlors. It can change. The risk appetite can change for insurers, but even in this current market, even if you take in sort of restaurants and cafes, some of the requirements that the insurers are now looking for for risk mitigation are increasing. So whereas, you know, a fire blanket, an extinguisher may not just not quite cut it these days, whether there's sprinkler systems, even the insurers are starting to ask questions like fire suppression systems. So fire suppression systems in a cooking area is in the flu area right directly above and a business that has that and does have a fire that's put out very very quickly so the benefit to the business owner is that they could actually clean that up and get back into business a whole lot quicker than if that fire engulfed the flu area and the fats that could be there and spread to other parts of their business so once again business owners can take responsibility for to mitigate the loss, but also get insurance a little bit easier. But specific occupations, yes, you've mentioned your tattoo parlors, recyclers. I've been hearing about uh, tyre fitment centres or anything yeah. that's rubber. Yeah, with rubber, because the amount of rubber there, once a fire starts, it doesn't stop for quite a while. So 
Tire retailers, yes, that can be another one, depending on their fire load of stock at any one time. Mish, I'm sorry to say this, but even beauty salons can be sometimes a risk purely because of simple facts of where they do massages and have oil, where towels get oil soaked, but they get washed, but it doesn't wash out all the oil, but they put them into a dryer, they can self-combust. If the heat is gets hot enough, they will self-combust. So there's little bits of most businesses, there is risk there, absolutely. So I hope that's enough sort of occupation. But, you know, if as I say, if you're looking at welding businesses, heat manufacturing businesses that have heat in them, of course, and as I say, yes, the tattoo parlours for, I suppose, risk of where they might be associated. But, I mean, there's good and bad in every industry, so let's not tie them with all the one brush. So that's why I look at it. Just totally left field. I mean, I'm just thinking of various different businesses while we're talking about insurance. And yep. it's a question that I haven't asked before, but you mentioned, well, we spoke about Fitman C. I'm thinking um, not motor dealerships, but garage shops, repair shops. You mean mechanics? Um, yes. Mechanics, where you might have, yep. would contamination come into, would the insurers have a look at contamination? Yes, there's some type, well, there's light pollution that could be under the liability, depending on the wordings. Yes, you could have an exclusion for pollution because, once again, they've been negligent in what they do. You've got to remember there is a liability component to every business. So that's a whole cover in its own right of a gym, for instance. Now, they may not have a high fire load, but their liability exposure could be great. So, Sorry, I should have mentioned that before. There are many components and whether it's a professional business needing professional indemnity insurance. So every risk, every occupation or most occupations have an inherent risk, whether it's a material one, a physical one or a monetary one. Yeah, you talk about liabilities. That would be the business itself. That wouldn't be the structure, the building. Oh, yes. Property owners have an exposure there because lack of maintenance. Someone's walking upstairs in a building and they fall through and they break their leg. So I know there's absolutely liability exposure for property owners as well. Slip and falls outside, holes in driveways or car parks. So, yes, there's exposure right across the board, whether you're a property owner or business owner. I hope you're enjoying the show. We'll be right back after this short break. Are you struggling to put together a wealth plan? Revolve Commercial have designed an eight-question process that generates a personalized 12-month wealth growth plan, and it's free. I gotta check this out myself. Go to www.revolvecommercial.com.au to get your personalized wealth growth plan free today. This is a little bit self-serving for Misha and I. Can you explain how insurance works for asset types like particularly self-storage and also caravan parks where like the business is reliant on the real estate? Which one are you actually insuring there? Are you insuring the business or are you insuring the physical asset? How does that work? You're insuring both. I mean, unless a caravan park has no facilities on it, you've then got primarily a liability risk. There's not too many caravan parks these days that don't have their own structures on the land that they need to insure. Would you agree with that? Or It depends because if it's a manufactured home estate, they don't actually own the, the caravan park doesn't own the buildings on top. They just own the land and they're renting it out like a lot rent. I mean, there's areas these days of, let's say, over 50s lifestyle. Yep. So you've still got, let's call it common property, dealing with one just recently. 
they've got three or four stages that they've got to get to. They're at their first stage, but they've got the common, the clubhouse area, for instance, swimming pool, the man shed, if I can call it that. It could be the women and man shed these days. Sorry, I'm trying to be politically correct. So the responsibility for the developer or the, the owner of that facility is that, yes, they still have material risk to insure. They have then their liability risk for what could happen in that common area or those areas that have been commonly used. But at the same time, the people who've bought and had a house built there need to insure that themselves for all the, the risks that homeowners do. So, but yes, you could have a caravan park or a camping site that may not have anything on there from a material risk point of view, but there's still a liability exposure. If what happens to someone on that, that could be attributed to the owner of the land. And it's the same with a building. You've got a tenant in there running their business. They have their liability exposure, but the property owner does have their own exposure as well. And just on a side note, where you've got strata buildings, you've got someone who's going to buy a unit in a, let's say, a 10-unit strata. Whilst the building is insured, the person who's buying that unit still may have an exposure for their own fixtures and fittings with inside that building. And also, they might want to take out their own business interruption loss of rent cover because not knowing whether the strata policy will respond enough should the worst case scenario happen. So really every scenario that we've spoken about has its own set of exposures. It could be different to someone else. And what about self-storage? What's your question about self-storage? What kind of insurance should we be looking at taking out on a self-storage facility? Well, you'll find that the majority of storage facilities being part of a large group, they could insure your contents while they're in there. So I'm moving house. Let's say I'm moving house, but I need to put it in storage. You've got to check with the, if I had it insured at home, does my insurer insure it when I move it for temporary reasons to a self-storage unit? So that's always the first step to check with your current insurer if it's already insured. Let's say the storage facility may insure the goods. They've got a scheme that they can say, yes, we'll, yep. we'll insure it. One of the issues with storage facilities is you don't know what's inside those facilities. People key to their own unit, they could be putting anything in there. But a lot of storage units will say, well, there's no flammables allowed to be stored, et cetera, et cetera. But once again, you just never know what's going inside those sheds and what's going on inside those sheds as well. I'm not but being negative about it. With that in mind, self-storage, you so rightfully said, you never know what's being stored in there. If somebody is in storing flammables or something that could combust, let's say, the insurance, how do they monitor the insurance? I mean, and I'm thinking two things over here, because recently with all the floods and all of that, there was a case uh, that popped up on the news where a young family were moving. They were doing exactly that. They were between two homes and they put all their stuff in storage, and then floods came along, and the storage was flooded. So they lost all of their contents, and they weren't insured in the storage. And when they read their policy, it turned out that the storage wasn't insured for their for their contents. Yeah, well, once again, at the time of placing that storage, you would find the storage operator should be declaring of what's insured, what's not insured, if it is at all. So, But at the same time, just a client recently, only in the last week, the storage facility offered to provide them cover for their goods while it's in there. So some will, some won't. So I would think that's pretty difficult because you don't know the value of the goods that are going in there. So, I mean, as storage owner, if you're providing cover for somebody who's who's putting their goods in your storage, 
you don't know the value of the goods that are going in there. So It's on a case-by-case scenario. So the owners of the goods would be declaring. That's like me saying to someone, okay, I'll insure it and I'm going to pick the sums insured. Well, no, that doesn't work that way. <laughs> so, you know, the storage owner would say, oh, the owner of the storage facility would be asking people, what's the sum insured that you want to insure for? I would think. Yeah, that's I haven't right. Been in that, I wouldn't, haven't been in that scenario, but logically mm-hmm. thinking, you just simply can't choose. It's like having purchasing a unit in a Gold Coast complex where that unit is going to go into the letting pool. Well, mm-hmm. once again, it's still it's up to the owner to ensure for what the replacement value of his contents or his or hers contents in that unit. So, so you can't. He determines the value of his contents, whether it be 50,000 or 100,000, in other words. Well, like yourself, myself, if I want to ensure my contents at home, I've got to say, yeah. well, look around the room. If I lost all this today, and this is the rule that I sort of say to people, and whether it's business, but primarily business, is that I'll step outside someone's business and say to them, if that was an empty shell today, what would it cost you to put everything in there today new? Mm-hmm. It's so, a very, very interesting exercise. And I don't know if you know my story, but I had a massive warehouse, a massive factory that burned down. I thought we were adequately insured. Yes. Turns out that we were not insured for the little things. So the little things that make up a business, people don't actually think about that. We call that, in that industry, we used to call it cabbage. But So the cabbage is the waste product. But the waste product was actually used functionally and formed a, a really important part of the business. You know, so it's very interesting what you're saying about, you know, fire, flood, that sort of thing. You'll look around you and you'll probably put a value on it. But I reckon having been through the experience myself, I reckon 90% of people would undervalue their contents. Unfor- yeah, unfortunately so. And that's one of the things, as I say, that one of the methods that I use to awaken people is to pose that question and some prudent business people they then set up their asset register and yes they they might have an asset register for depreciation from a tax point of view but that asset register can also help them determine what is the replacement cost of those items today and as we know the cost of things are going up quite dramatically at the moment some it things have obviously reduced in prices over the year because of technology improving them and making them less to uh, manufacture but the majority of those increases and people you know should they apply cpi indexing on a yearly basis but you know stock levels will change from season to season let alone year to year so businesses that are growing if you've got that spreadsheet you need to update it on an annual basis absolutely absolutely yeah throughout covid there's been many businesses that have actually grown hugely over this period of time it hasn't been once again, I'm not getting in the political circle, but it hasn't been all doom and gloom for businesses through this. Some have excelled through that as well. So anyway, I digress a little bit and I do apologize for that. Just jumping back to the, the self-storage insurance yep. policy thing, Mish. So what an insurance operator will do is they'll take out a blanket policy over the whole facility. And then when a tenant or a customer comes in, there's a sliding scale of how much cover they want to take out. So it's a great value-add opportunity to actually introduce insurance cover into a self-storage facility. So it'll literally Mm -hmm. be like, do you want to pay $1 for $1,000? Do you want to pay $2 for $2,000? And that's an extra dollar or $2 that they have to pay each month. 
So they actually do basically tell them how much cover they want, and that's what they would be um, entitled to if something did happen. You've had experience with this, have you? I have, uh, Andrew? yes. I've been researching yes. self-storage for a very, very long time. Can I ask the question, why is that? Why is that? Yes. Because I'm going to be purchasing a lot of self-storage in future, and I'm going to be putting together a very, very large fund, syndication fund, with my trusty partner next to me, Amish Daniel. Okay. All right. There we go. The <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> so, sorry, you should have said, no, This is there's no duty of disclosure here. I, I, I won't answer that. But anyway, okay. Tough. <laughs> but just in support of what Andrew's saying, we are busy working on various different assets and acquisitions in the storage market. So doing lots of questioning and lots of due diligence in that area. It's sort of like a, I don't want to call it a secondary to commercial because I think it is commercial's uh, best cousin, put it that way. Okay. At the moment. All right. Keeping it all so, in the family. Okay. All right. There we go. Absolutely. It's just a little step to the side. Okay. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> You'll be hearing from us, Terry. Don't worry. We're going to be speaking a lot about it. <laughs> this would be a good time to bring in a question from the audience, a listener. This actually question is from Alex Sue, and it is, how would a large flood affect insurance premiums if it occurs in the neighborhood, but not your street directly? Well, I go back to what I said earlier on about flood mapping. There's been a lot of time and effort put into to try and assess locations by geographically, topographically, if that's the right word. So you don't know until you know, if I can put it that way. I'm, once again, I'm not trying to avoid your question, but the insurance companies will. That's primarily the one of the rating tools at this point in time is the flood mapping. Sometimes it may not take into account exactly where everyone is come and say, well, I'm on top of a hill, I won't get flooded sort of thing, but they believe they're being charged for it. It's on a case-by-case. So the insurance companies already have the tools and they're using them. Like everything, everything can be improved. And I'm, I'm saying that from a general point of view and a common sense point of view that nothing will ever be perfect. But if you take Lismore, and you know, honestly, I'll, t- I'll take Lismore. As I said, clients in 2017, they might have had a meter through their their shop in 2017. Today, it's gone up to the second floor of their building. So no one could ever have envisaged that sort of impact. But the rain event that we had and the word that everyone said was unprecedented. But yes, its impact is huge and will be for a long time. So once again, I haven't probably answered your question, but I hope people get the idea. There is one very interesting question that uh, I'd like to ask you, Terry, with regards purchasing a commercial building. Are there yep. any particular likes and dislikes or dislikes that an insurance company would prefer? Yep. Okay. So if we talk from a building point of view, if the more concrete, the better, to make that simple, if I could put it that way. But even but even buildings that are tilt slab buildings, it will come down to what are the tenancies within those? I mean, there's numerous examples of, you know, modern built tilt slab buildings, steel beams, steel roofs. But if there's combustibles inside, what can happen is that the heat gets that great that it melts the or softens the steel beams, the roofs fall in and the walls don't have anything to hold them up and they fall in as well. So 
it then comes down to, you know, are there sprinkler systems in place, that, that sort of thing. But certainly timber buildings that have got a cooking risk in them wouldn't be the, the greatest idea. With uh, grease traps and kitchens, without any fire suppressions in the kitchen. Yeah, very difficult. The old Queensland pubs, timber, etc., very hard to place because of the cooking facilities they have in them. And EPS, so extruded polystyrene, if business has copious quantities of that, that's also not because the extruded polystyrene is highly flammable. So if people aren't, aren't aware, if you look at the cool room type panelling, that panelling can be used in food facilities from a HACCP perspective. It's easier to wash down, clean down, etc., but still needs cooling for the food and so forth to be produced. If fire does start in that, basically it melts the styrene in between the metal panels and that simply feeds a fire and it'll burn for a long time. But certainly the more modern buildings, if there is sprinkler systems, but certainly fire hoses, every tenancy has extinguishers and multiple ones of them depending on their business. But certainly, yes, the concrete structures are better than a timber structure, if I could put it that way. Just as we know, timber structures will just, when they start to burn, they... They burn and, and burn fast. Yes. So, Terry, okay, a bit of fun. What, <laughs> <laughs> what loopholes and tricks can you teach us <laughs> in insurance? Are there any, any insurance loopholes or tricks that you could share with us? Well, well, I don't have any loopholes or tricks. So insurance... <laughs> <laughs> yes, it can be fun, but it's also a serious question as well to a degree. As individuals who are looking for insurance, as I said before, they can choose the covers they want and what they don't want and be aware of the risk. But, you know, it's the words you've used indicate to me basically saying, well, what can we do that's not quite right that might reduce our insurance? Well, if, and being serious here, if the duty of disclosure, if incorrect information is given, then at the end of the day, should a claim arise, that they're not going to be covered. They're not going to be covered if it's found yep. out. So even if it's as simple as let's take the liability of a business, a small manufacturing business, they're turning over two million dollars a year. But when we ask the question under duty disclosure, they say, "Oh no, I'm only doing four hundred thousand dollars a year," because the turnover under liability is a rating tool, one of the rating tools for liability. So by mm-hmm purposely understating think it's going to save you a few dollars can turn against you later on so yeah it's it's the short answer is there are no loopholes and or tricks thank you for saying that mish it's better than me saying it okay (laughs) what about tricks on they play on us because i'm sure there are loopholes and tricks on their side that they get us with no because i mean everything's in the product disclosure statements but does everyone read the product disclosure statements that's no. why they make them so long, though, because they don't read them. <laughs> yes, but they've also <laughs> had to change the way that they word them and put them in words that are more understandable. But I suppose we talk about business insurance. The thing is, with the discussion with the broker, while they can't read verbatim the policy wording, but to go through and give examples of. So if we talk about fire and other damage, for instance, and business interruption cover. So business interruption cover is the business owner's livelihood cover. So if there is an event that occurs under the property damage section and they've got business interruption, so if that event under section one stops a business person from able to, stops them from being able to conduct their business, then that's where the business interruption will come in to pay them pro rata for the period of time up to, let's say, a minimum of 12 months. 12 months is the minimum period that one should take business interruption. It can be extended, but that will help that business 
owner get back into business, hopefully no worse off than what they were prior to the event. And there's a number of factors in it. That's the sort of discussions that a broker will have with their clients. Fair enough. All right, mate. Well, I think this is a good time to segue into our next segment of the show, which is the fire round. Welcome to the fire round. So in this segment, we ask the same four questions to each guest in every episode. All right, Mish, do you want to kick it off? So, Terry, this is the best section as far as I'm concerned. And <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah, okay. absolutely. More fun, Terry, more fun. So okay. If you could, could only read one business book in your life, what book would it be and why? Okay, I'm not the world's greatest reader, but okay, directed at me. I've spoken many, many times to business people. It's a book that's either called How to Take three months off out of your business or six months off out of your business. It's one of those those figures. It's basically indicating to business people that regardless of the size of their business, they need to take time out of their business. So what are the things that they put in place to be able to do that? That means trusting staff, paying them accordingly and those sorts of things. Now, I haven't read the book totally, but the pretext is that a business person's point of view, they need to have a life as well because unfortunately people have their head down in their business for so long and by the time they bring their head up out of their business, the business may have gone before them and not realised it. So, I'm actually going to look that up because I think that is great advice. It's a great, great book. Okay. All right, mate. Next question. If you had $1 million deposit right now and you had to invest it tomorrow or you would lose it to the tax man, where would you invest it and what would you invest it in? In Andrew and Mitch's uh, self-storage business. Yes. Well, I I certainly would go to Revolve Commercial and to get their advice. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Terry, what would your answer be? <laughs> I was just being cheeky about jumping in there. So no, that, uh, that's uh, that's my answer. I'm standing at that on that right now. Okay. Oh, there you go, Mitch. We've got a million dollars committed right now. <laughs> it, the question was, if I had a million dollars, okay? I didn't say I did. <laughs> Fair enough. Excellent, excellent. Terry, if you lost your entire net wealth and you had to start all over again, what would your first move be? Wow, at my age, Miss, I'm not going to. I'll go back to. Can I give you a personal experience? I'll give you my personal experience. Okay. When 9 11 occurred, I was living in a one bedroom boarding house in Randwick in Sydney and working as a wardsman at Prince of Wales Private Hospital. I had my car, I had my golf clubs, and I had some clothes without the reasons going before that. From there, yes, I I did different things. But then when I got into the industry that I'm in now as an insurance broker, and that's now, I think it's 17 years, I would simply go and look, regardless of what age I am, I would simply, well, one, either continue to work doing what I'm doing or f- go out and find the work that will allow me to live the lifestyle that I want to become accustomed to. So you overcome adversity and stay positive and trust yourself to do what's going to be required. That's great. That's a great answer. Just get back into your skin, in other words. Yes. All right, mate. So apart from insurance, what are some of your favorite hobbies? They can change. At the moment, I compete in triathlons, small distance ones, and and starting to get into long distance ones. I have my motorbike that I can go out on. I've got my jet ski that I can go out in the water on. So it's a matter of what happens on what day and what takes my fancy without that sounding 
anything other than fluid, I, I'll change things that I do. I used to fly. I don't do that anymore. But my children, my grandchildren are my primary focus. But I, I am selfish. I take time out for myself. And everyone's got to be selfish at times to take time out for themselves. So don't stop doing it. I think Sounds like great. you'd have a lot of fun with you, Mitch, uh, on the bikes. Yeah, I think so, Terry. We are kindred spirits there. If it's got two wheels and a handlebar, I love it. Well, it's either push bike for the triathlons or the motorbikes if I want to go down the freeway. Okay. <laughs> we can swap some notes afterwards. <laughs> okay. All right, Terry. So you prepared a free giveaway for the listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's the insurance checklist. Well, yes, it's a checklist of some of the things that we've touched on today about particularly commercial purchases should be looking at in regards to the type of properties that they may be looking at purchasing. And that's everything from the construction of it, the tenant types, and all the risk stuff that goes with that. So, you know, construction of buildings, the fire security, the situation, where is it located? Is it in a fire zone? Is it in a flood zone? The protection of that from a security point of view. And also even things like age, heritage listings, for instance, versus uh, new properties. As I say, the moral risk that we spoke about earlier on, Hadoo Parlours, Adani Mines, or yeah. So there is a checklist and happy to go through those with anyone at any time. And yeah, happy to do so. So if you'd like to download that free checklist, go to revolvecommercial.com.au forward slash IC. That stands for insurance checklist, or I'll put it in the show notes as well. So you can just click the link. So, Terry, last question, mate. Where can listeners go to find out more about you? Oh, they can Google me. If they want to Google me, my name, I'm not the doctor. So if they Google me, I'm not the doctor, just to clarify that. They can look on the, the Cornerstone website, Cornerstone Risk Group. They can look at our the structure of our business and who's in the business. They can just Google me and find out. Well, I won't say lots of things, but there are some things there. Okay. <laughs> Perfect, mate. All right. Today's guest has been Terry Phyllis. Thanks, Terry. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. This has been Mish Daniel and Andrew Bean on the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Where wealth revolves around you. Thanks for listening to the Revolve Commercial Podcast. Don't forget to check out their private Facebook group, Cashflow on Autopilot with Revolve Commercial. This show has been produced by the Commercial Property Show Network.